Fear not, little flock. I wanted Jesus to have the first words in this sermon. That's what he said in Luke's gospel, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that nickname that he's given us, little flock. Isn't that precious? It's like we're, we're precious little lambs in Jesus' eyes. Fear not, little flock. That's what we'll see in Psalm 28. So turn there in your Bibles. In Psalm 28, David is like a scared little sheep. He once again finds himself in a jam, in a pickle. His enemies are still harassing him, but that's not the worst of it. David feels like God is silent, like God is not speaking to him, like God is not listening to his prayers. And that is way worse than having enemies breathing down your neck. If God quit speaking, if God quit listening to our prayers, that would be death. Just order the caskets now, put me in the ground. And that's how David starts out Psalm 28. Fortunately, he makes it to verse 6, and we will too, but we got to start in the quiet darkness of verse 1. So Psalm 28, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Yahweh, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So the very first words of this psalm tell us everything we need to know about David. Whatever the specifics are on who his enemies are and what they are up to are not as important as what David does at the beginning of this psalm. He goes straight to the Lord. To you, O Yahweh. The first two words are to you in the Hebrew text. This is, it's emphatic here. Make no bones about it, David is hightailing it to the Lord. He's not going to shilly-shally today. There's a lot going on in his heart. There's a lot going on in his world. And so he goes straight to the Lord. And he calls the Lord his rock. This is a, a passive metaphor that David's using that depicts strength and immovability and permanence and reliability But when David says this, when he calls God his rock, he probably also has in mind the rock. Not the wrestler actor guy, but the rock in the Old Testament. Namely, the rock of Exodus 17 fame. Do you remember that rock? The one that Moses struck so that the people could get water to drink as they roamed the desert. Water came from a rock to quench the thirst of the Israelites in the desert. So when David calls Yahweh his rock, he's saying, you are the one who refreshes me. You are the stable, immovable, reliable rock that gushes forth life-saving water and vitality. And David needs that kind of refreshment from Yahweh because his world is spinning. His heart is all over the place. He's a frightened little sheep. And maybe you need that kind of refreshment today. Do you need refreshment? Do you feel like you're in a desert and you're parched, 
thirsty, wasting away, dying of thirst? Do you feel like life is so crazy and you need something sturdy, something stable? Because everything feels unsteady. Your world, your heart has been rattled. You can go to your rock, Jesus. And he will refresh you today. And he will give you life-giving water to slake your thirst and replenish your parched soul. He is sturdy. He is reliable when life is not steady. So cry out to him today like David and, and make it personal. David said, he's my rock. As we saw a few weeks ago, you have to personalize God's attributes and character. You have to make it personal. You have to learn to stick my, your my, on the front of God's character and not on your problems because we naturally add our my's to our problems, don't we? My trials, my suffering, my sorrow, my pain, my heartache. But David is teaching us to add our mys to God and his character, to make it personal, to make it intimate, to say, my rock, he's my stability, he's my refreshment. So David goes straight to his rock. And that's what we're supposed to do, right? You just go talk to Jesus. You, you run if you have to. But here's the thing, David seems to have momentarily forgotten that the Lord loves to listen to us, that he loves to listen to our prayers. We're like David, aren't we? We can momentarily forget truths that we know, truths that we would die for. And yet, when life happens and it gets hectic and there's heartache and pain and sorrow and suffering and trials and problems, it's so easy to momentarily forget deep truths that we believe that we would die for. So David seems to have momentarily forgotten that the Lord loves to listen to our prayers. He thinks the Lord is deaf to his cries. He's a scared little sheep that has begun to think that his shepherd won't hear his cries for help. And so on the one hand, David says in verse 1, you are the one who refreshes me. You are the stable, immovable, reliable rock that gushes forth life-saving water and vitality. And then on the other hand, David says, please don't plug your ears when I cry to you. Please don't give me this silent treatment. In other words, David's all over the place, isn't he? But isn't that strangely comforting? I love the honesty of Psalm 28 because this is what we're like. One minute we affirm great, grand, sweeping truths about Jesus, and the next minute we don't believe it. One minute we can expound on deep theological matters, and we can talk a good talk about our doctrine and our theology, and then the next minute we can be a frantic, anxiety-ridden, fear-filled little lamb. Listen, Psalm 28 is in the Bible so that we would know that the normal path of discipleship is often back and forth like this. Filled up with truth at church on Sunday and then pulling our hair out, tossing and turning in bed, stressed out, scared, and losing our minds on Tuesday. Every pastor or theologian that has written some extensive systematic theology book does the exact same thing David does here. The exact same thing you do. They've got a chapter in their book on the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. They've preached on it. And yet, they get scared and full of anxiety when trouble and suffering 
invade their lives unexpectedly. One minute they write a 40-page chapter in a book, a systematic theology book on God's sovereignty over all things, his providence, and the next minute they too are a scared little sheep. To that I say with David, welcome to discipleship. And through all the ups and downs, the I believe help my unbelief, Jesus remains the same. He's stable, he's reliable, he's sturdy, he is a rock. He doesn't give us the silent treatment when we're all over the place emotionally. When we're a mess, he still loves us and he still listens to us. In fact, Jesus loves to listen to us. Jesus loves when we talk to him. That's amazing, isn't it? He's not like us. Usually we're on our iPhones and someone interrupts us and we're like, what? Right? You do that, don't you? Your spouse, your kids. Your, what? What do you want? Jesus doesn't do that with us. He loves when we talk to him. We aren't startled by that truth enough, I don't think. We forget that to our detriment. And then we wind up in the fear-filled world of David in Psalm 28 when we do. Alec Motier said he loves us to talk to him. He says, I want you to tell me. Please open your heart to me. Let me know how you feel. Let me know where you hurt. Let me know what you want. What do you want me to do for you? An essential part of prayer is putting our prayer into words, telling him all about it. Jesus said in one place, your father knows what you have need of before you ask. Well, of course he does. He's God. But he still wants us to ask. Alec Motier gave us a lesson in prayer. Number one, tell God how you feel. He already knows. If you're mad, tell him you're mad. If you're hurt, tell him you're hurt. Tell him how you feel. Tell him where you hurt. Tell him why it hurts. And then tell God what you want. This is what... This is how I feel. This is where I'm hurting. And this is what I want you to do for me, Jesus. So if you struggle to pray, just, there you go. Just do that. Tell God how you feel. Tell God where you hurt. Tell God what you want. That's it. That's prayer. We can do that, right? We just talk to him. And yet, it can be hard to pray, to pray, can it? It can be hard to talk to Jesus because oftentimes we have to wait for an answer. It can be hard to talk to Jesus because we have to wait. It can be hard to talk to Jesus because sometimes it feels like God is silent. And that's David here in Psalm 28. He goes straight to Yahweh with his plea. He's calling out and he's worried that somehow God will be deaf to his cries. That God will somehow go, la, 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 la. David says, if you don't hear my prayers, Yahweh, if you don't pick up the phone, I'm going to die I'll be like those who go down to the pit. I'll be a dead man if you're not listening and you don't answer. Sometimes life is that way, isn't it? I'm going to die if you don't intervene, Jesus. For God to go quiet and to go off the radar, to get a busy signal when you have dialed him up, that idea, that is death for David. You've probably been where David is before. You've ever felt like God was silent? feels like death when it feels like God is silent, doesn't it? But understand this. God is present even when he is most absent. 
God is always working in your life, even when you can't see him. Sometimes you can see what he's doing. Sometimes you can see all the ways that he's working in your life. And sometimes you have no idea at all. Sometimes you wonder, you scratch your head. Is he involved in my life? Is he really involved? Does he really care? Sometimes you stress out and you worry and you wonder if he cares. You wonder if he really sees what is happening in your life. You wonder if he's really listening to your prayers. And you wonder if he's really going to intervene. And honestly, that's what the Christian life is like a lot of time, isn't it? A lot of the Christian life is about wondering what God is up to. It's a lot about trusting God now when he seems hidden, even though he's not. When he seems silent, even though he's not. It's about trusting God now and understanding him later. Let me say that again. A lot of the Christian life is about trusting God now and understanding him later. And that later may not be until we see him face to face on the new earth. And he unpacks our life for us. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. And if that bothers you, you'll be a miserable Christian. Listen, God is not in the habit of telling us everything that he is doing in our lives. The Christian life truly is a lot of trusting God right now because of his character, because of who he is, because he is a rock, because he is sturdy, because he is reliable, because he is stable. Trusting him now because of who he is and what he has said about himself in his word, trusting his character now, but understanding him later. Now, we know that God has spoken to us in his word, even when it feels like he is silent, feels like he isn't talking to us, he has spoken to us in his word. David knew this too. And so David cries out for mercy in verse 2. Here's what's going on in David's heart in Psalm 28. Number one, he feels like God is silent and God's not listening to him. And number two, he needs mercy. And that's why he says in verse 2, I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. The Hebrew word used here for sanctuary is used of the innermost part of the tabernacle and later on the innermost part of Solomon's temple. It's a reference to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. So let's take a a quick tour of the tabernacle as it may have looked in David's day. This is something of what it may have looked looked like. Sands, priests, people, animals, blood, flies. You get the picture, right? I've told you before, worship in the Old Testament was very bloody, very gory. Don't be surprised if you go to church in your nice white shirt and offer an animal and you come home and you've got blood all over you. That's just how it was. This is something of what it would have looked like. You see in the middle there the the brazen altar where they would have offered sacrifices. And towards the back is the most holy place where the table of showbread was and the menorah and the altar of incense. Those were all inside that little square tent in the back there. Next, we have a, a shot looking toward the holy place. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would take blood from the animal that was slain here. And he would go inside the holy place, back into that area in the back with it. Next, you see the insides of the holy place. There's the menorah, the altar of incense, the table for the showbread. And behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies. Inside that back room is where they would keep the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest would only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the corners of the Ark. 
The next pick is what the high priest would see as he moved through the curtains and entered the Holy of Holies. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's another shot of the Ark. This place, this room, is where David says in verse 2, he lifts his hands toward. His hands are reaching towards that inner place. But why does David lift his hands to the holy, most innermost place of the Holy of Holies? The answer is because this is where the presence of Yahweh was. This little room was Yahweh's place. This was Yahweh's bedroom, if you will. This is where he lived. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, which is what David needed in this dark, fear-filled moment in his life. How so? Why does David need the Ark of the Covenant? Why do, why do his hands reach toward this most holy place? Well, the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments. God spoke to his people and gave them his law. And what is David's fear in Psalm 28? His fear is that God has gone silent. So David is saying, I need your word. I need you to speak to me again through your law. But the Ark of the Covenant also signified that God was merciful to sinners. This is so cool, y'all. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called what? The mercy seat. Think about that. The mercy seat. The mercy seat covered the Ten Commandments, which were kept inside the Ark. Blood would be splattered on the outside of the Ark once a year, signifying that mercy covers our failure to keep the Ten Commandments, our failure to keep God's holy law because we're sinners. And so blood was applied on the corners with the mercy seat covering God's holy commandments, reminding us that mercy triumphs over judgment, as James tells us. Isn't that good news? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant might bore you because the Ark is just a little box made of acacia wood, which is then covered over with gold, and it got splattered with blood once a year. But the Ark of the Covenant is a reminder that God loves and forgives sinners. The Ark screams out mercy. The Ark screams out, y'all don't get what you deserve. You've broken my commandments, but you don't get what you deserve because there's a mercy seat, a covering. Mercy to sinners like you and like me. The Ark of the Covenant is a gentle reminder from God that he loves even you. The ark is a reminder that Jesus can't remember your sins. You might want to underline the word ark in your Bible because every time you read the word ark in your Bible, you are being reminded that the sin that you cannot seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. You're being reminded that God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's why David says his hands are reaching out for the most holy place. Because David, even though he was the king, he could not enter into the holy of holies. But he makes this really big assumption in verse 2, doesn't he? What assumption? David assumes that his prayers can enter into the holy of holies. How encouraging. David cannot physically go into the Holy of Holies where Yahweh's presence was. But his prayers could. His prayers pass through the curtains, smack dab in the middle of God's presence. His prayers could barge right into 
Yahweh's bedroom. And uh, Christian, your prayers too go straight into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Jesus, your high priest, hears your prayers. And that's why we need this reminder from Jesus himself today who said, fear not, little flock. Why? Because the gospel gets the last word in your life, not your sin, not your failure to keep God's commands. The gospel gets the last word in your life. And the Ark of the Covenant tells you that. It tells you that you are clean. It tells you that you are washed that you are pure because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Because his blood, which was shed on the cross, has been sprinkled on the altar in heaven for you, as the preacher of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of Jesus, the gospel, gets the last word in your life because of eternal redemption. And the gospel gets the last word in Psalm 28 because we'll see in a moment that David's heart has been recalibrated by looking to the sanctuary, looking to the innermost place, looking to the Ark of the Covenant looking to the presence of Yahweh and his heart gets recalibrated. And he will end the psalm this way, the way we should end this sermon, the way we should end every service by worshiping the gracious, merciful God that we serve. But some people won't experience this mercy and that's sobering. So let's pay attention to the next few verses so that we remember to pray for people and to share the good news with lost people because if they don't receive Jesus and trust in him and him alone, then what awaits them in eternity is terrifying. Look at verse three. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of Yahweh or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. David is most likely speaking here not of pagan nations, not pagan people, but of people within Israel who don't follow Yahweh. People who were part of the church community, if you will, who did not follow Yahweh. David doesn't want to be swept away in judgment with them. The people in verses 3 through 5 are unbelievers. And so David prays that they will get what they deserve. He says, give them what they deserve, Lord. They're wicked. They're evil. David prays that they would get their reward. And you can pray that way too, you know. As Ralph Davis says, he pleads that Yahweh will pay them back in equitable proportion. This may seem too brutal to some of us in the West who exist in a soft-headed, emotion-dripping, feeling-soaked culture. But a moment's thought tells us that David is doing nothing more than Paul would later require in Romans 12, 19. Don't take vengeance to yourselves. Commit vengeance to God. How do you do that? You pray that God will take vengeance on them. 
like eating your oatmeal. It's the right thing to do. That's what David is doing here, committing vengeance to God by praying that God will take them out. Sometimes one reads an expositor or commentator who says that a prayer like verse 4 is out of line with the spirit of the gospel, whatever that is, and the New Testament, which is poppycock. Not only does the prayer line up with Romans 12, but with New Testament instances of prayers for justice, Revelation 6, or over justice, Revelation 19. With this, however, Jesus' disciples hold to Luke 6 as well, to love enemies, do good to those who hate them, and pray for those who abuse them. Is it too big a stretch to believe we are called to pray for our enemies, that God would bring them to repentance, and yet against the enemies of God's people, that God would bring them to justice? Can't we handle a little bit of paradox? Sometimes believers must pray prayers that have hair on their chests. I think Psalm 28 is instructive for Christian believers. Sometimes, depending on our circumstances, we may think there is nothing we can do about the ravages of evil and wicked men. But Psalm 28 says we can do something. We can pray. We can pray against them. We can pray God will punish them. We can pray God will take them out. I couldn't have said it better than myself. Probably couldn't be a more relevant quote for our culture and our time today, right? But like I said, and like David just did, you can pray like this. We can pray that unbelievers will be spared from what happens after this life in eternity in hell. We can pray. We should pray. God, grant them repentance. Save them. Pray that they will not experience eternity in hell while at the same time praying that the evil and the hell that they do in this life to other people will be stopped. Spare them from eternal hell, God, God, but please stop them now. Bring your vengeance upon them because of the evil that they are doing to people in our world today. And that's all I'm going to say on the matter. And so I'm going to leave you with that paradox Because we've got to get to verse 6. Because David seems to have gotten his theological bearings finally. After five verses, his heart is recalibrated. Look at verse 6. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Yahweh is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. David has now moved from fear and anxiety to peace and joy. God answered his prayers and so now he blesses him. You can actually feel the joy, can't you? David says Yahweh is his strength and shield, which means that David doesn't have to muster up these things within himself. He simply has to rest in who Yahweh is. He can trust the God who helps him. He can sing and exult now. Instead of pacing the floor with his stomach all in knots, chewing on his fingernails, David can now sing and give thanks. Why? Because God has answered his prayers 
because Yahweh is the strength of his people. You see, there's something about getting a sense of how big God's muscles are that flips a switch in David's heart so that now he can sing and dance instead of fret and fear. There's something about knowing that our God hears and answers our prayers and saves us out of sticky situations. Something about that that can cause you to exult and to rejoice and be glad. There's something about God strengthening you and shielding you and protecting you that can make you want to sing and dance, just like David here. Notice, too, that David ends by praying for the nation of Israel. He says, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. David knows what it's like to be a frightened little sheep. He knows what it's like to be all stressed out about life, and so he turns to pray for anyone who might be feeling the same way he was feeling at the beginning of this psalm. He asks Yahweh to save, which I think here means save them out of their trials, their troubles, their hardships, their sufferings, their fears, the anxiety that has gripped them. In other words, David is saying, save them like you saved me out of my fear and anxiety. But then David prays that Yahweh would bless his people. What does it mean for the Lord to bless us? It simply means that the Lord would take note of our needs and meet them. It's shorthand for Jesus. Please look over their situation, what they are facing, identify their needs, and respond by meeting them. And so I pray this a lot for people when I don't know what to pray about a situation or if I don't know much about a situation. I pray, Jesus, bless them. Take note of their needs, whatever they are, and meet them. That's what it means for the Lord to bless us, for him to Look over our lives, where are the needs that we have? And for him to respond by meeting those needs. And that's a simple prayer that anybody can pray, right? Take note of their needs and meet them. Well, who is this God who blesses his people? David ends Psalm 28 by telling us that he is the good shepherd. David has learned as a scared little sheep that he has a shepherd who carries him in his arms who carries him close to his chest, close to his heart. Isn't that wonderful? When you're scared, full of anxiety, stressed out, worried, can't eat, can't sleep, can't think, think you're going to lose your mind, Jesus, the good shepherd, in that moment is holding you in his arms, close to his loving heart. That may be all someone here today needs to hear. And as our shepherd carries us in his arms, close to his loving heart, he says to us, fear not, little flock. Or he would say to you personally, fear not, my little precious lamb. Listen, Jesus knows your fears. And you know what? This is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't minimize our fears. I love that. Whatever it is, we all have fears and anxiety and worries about concerns about all kinds of things in life that if we were to share them with someone else, they're like, you're worked up about that? That's no big deal. Jesus doesn't do that with us. He doesn't minimize our fears. He takes them at face value and says, so this is what's concerning you? Tell me about it. And he doesn't shame us because of our fears. He doesn't shame us because we panic. 
He doesn't shame us because we momentarily forget deep theological truths that we would fall on the sword for, and then a few minutes later we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't scold you because you are afraid. He doesn't come alongside you and say, just get with the program, bro. Come on. This is not that big of a deal. Get over it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't minimize our fears. He doesn't shame us because of our fears. He doesn't scold us. He listens. He holds us close in his strong arms so that we can feel his muscles. He holds us close to his heart so that we can hear it and feel it beating in his chest. That's your shepherd, Grace. He's good. He's the good shepherd. As Alec Motier said, the Old Testament is the place where we learn about the good shepherd looking after his sheep. God is in love with us. His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. That's so plain in the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons why I love the Old Testament. Because you see the heart of Jesus all over the place. And usually in very weird, bizarre stories. So I appreciate that about Jesus. Revealing his heart through weird stories. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came as the good shepherd and laid his life down for us. And he will carry you in his arms close to his heart. So don't shilly-shally today. Run to him with all that is going on in your heart and feel his muscles as he carries you. Feel his heartbeat as you rest your head on his chest. Let's close with a rewording of Psalm 23 from a children's book called Found by Sally Lloyd-Jones. God is my shepherd and I am his little lamb. He feeds me, he guides me, He looks after me. I have everything I need. Inside my heart is very quiet, as quiet as lying still in soft green grass in a meadow by a little stream. Even though I walk through the dark, scary, lonely places, I won't be afraid because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me. He makes me strong and brave. He is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me. Everything I ever dreamed of. He fills my heart full of happiness. I can't hold it all inside. Wherever I go, I know God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love will go too. Isn't that great? Kind of makes me want to sing and dance. How about you? Jesus is our shepherd, the good shepherd who holds us close to his heart. And you know what? David needed this little children's book by Sally Lloyd-Jones at the start of Psalm 28 because he was a scared little lamb. But somewhere along the way, David found it. And now he could say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you not only laid your life down for us, which we desperately needed, but that you carry us in your arms, Lord. You don't save us and then put us on a shelf. You saved us and you were very much involved in our lives. Thank you that you don't shame us, you don't minimize our fears. 
You take them at face value, Lord, and you listen to us. What a tender, loving, caring Savior you are. We need you, Lord. And so we just come with the empty hands of faith and say, would you strengthen us today so that we can say it is well with our soul. In your name we pray.